Well, we're going to continue our worship by coming to the Word of the Lord to receive His wisdom. And I was um, kind of impressed by the fact uh, that doing what I do on a week-to-week basis and three times each weekend now is, is kind of an intimidating thing to do. It, and it's not, you know, so intimidating because you get up and you, and you speak in front of people. You kind of get used to that, you know, though I will tell you all of my blood is rushing to the vital organs right now. So my hands are like ice, okay? And that's part of it, but that's the least part of it. Uh, the intimidating part is you don't want to mess it up. You know, you realize you're standing in some sense as the spokesperson of the Lord, and to the degree that you get it right, you get it right, and when you don't, you know, that's, that's not good for anybody. Um, but I think it's particularly intimidating with a passage of Scripture like the one that we're going to look at today, and I, I say that because it is such a beautiful and magnificent picture of the one of whom we just sang, and of us, that I just don't want to mess it up. And so I've been praying that the Lord will give me the grace to, to not do that, or if I do, that He'll overcome it, and He'll impress this picture and image upon your heart in such a way that it changes you, and that it draws you to the one whom I hope you'll see the glory of. So if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in the season of Lent, and in fact, this is the third weekend in the season of Lent, and you maybe know a little bit about Lent, and so maybe you know, or maybe you don't, but now you're about to, that Lent is that season in the Christian calendar year in which Christians all over the world, including many of us here, do what? We seek by means of prayer, by means of worship, by means of study, by means of voluntary self-deprivations and fasts of all kinds to enter intentionally, viscerally, into the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ, by which Christ paid the debt that we all owe to God. And if you're new to the conversation, you might be thinking, well, you know, why do I owe a debt to God? I mean, it's like, not like you went down to the bank of God and took out a loan or something, but, but you nevertheless owe a debt. So do I. So does everybody else. And the reason for that, I think at least conceptually, is pretty simple. The reason for that is that Almighty God created everything and everyone for Himself. That includes me, that includes you, and then He gifted us, and He gave us all kinds of talents and abilities and opportunities. He measures out our every breath and heartbeat. He numbers out our every day. He's given all of these things to us, and then He's given us the great dignity of creating us for the singular greatest purpose that there ever could possibly be, which is what? Living for me, living for you, living for other people, living for stuff. No, come on. That's beneath us us. It's living for Him. You can't fault Him for that. But what have we done? Well, you know, we haven't done that. None of us have done that, have we? And here's the problem. When you deprive someone of something that you owe to that someone, what happens? Well, you begin to accrue a debt with that someone, and by its very nature, this is a debt that we cannot possibly pay. And why can't we pay it? Because there's no magical time machine that we can get in and then trans go back into time, you know, and go, okay, Lord, I'm going to stop here because I'm pretty sure that this moment, this hour, this day, this week, this decade, at least the four years of college, I did not live for you. Did you? So now I'm going to get it right. I'm going to do it all over. And I don't, you can't do that, can you? And you can't pay it off in the future either. Why? Because you already owe Him every day you get. And you can only live one day at a time. So all of a sudden you go, oh, good grief, I've got this debt that I can't pay. And God in love, nevertheless, in the person of Jesus Christ, came into this world To do what? By His sufferings, by His death, by the infinitely valuable righteousness of His life, 
to pay the debt for anybody who just freely claims that payment in their behalf. So what is Lent? Lent is really, in many ways, a journey into death. But as we talked about two weeks ago, it's not just a journey into the death of Jesus. It's a journey into all kinds of deaths for us as well. Sound like fun? Just stay with me for a second. Why do I say that? I say that because Lent, traditionally and historically, and for good reason, has been a season of repentance for God's people. It's a season of self-examination in which you and I, before the Holy Spirit, lay ourselves, as Matt said earlier, bare before God, which incidentally is the way He sees us anyway. And we say, search me and know me. Show me the faults within me. Reveal, Lord, the things that I'm doing, saying, attitudes, whatever the case may be, that I, okay, need to put on this table. And I need to own. And then I need to say, you know what? Jesus Christ suffered and died for this. And like, I'm all in His sufferings and death because this is Lent. He's, wait a minute, hang on a second. So He suffered and died for this. Here's what I need, therefore, then to stop doing. I need to stop doing this. I need to stop hiding this. I need to stop denying this. I need to stop excusing this. I need to stop building walls around this. I need to stop fertilizing this. I need to stop watering this. I need to stop cultivating this. I need to stop bowing down to this and requiring everybody else to do so as well. I need to stop all of that. Jesus died for this. And I need to die to this. There it is. That's Lent. But it doesn't end in death, does it? Because in dying to it, what happens? You're freed from it. You learn how truly to live. As we said two weeks ago, sin is quite the liar. You know, it comes to us and it promises things that it doesn't deliver. It promises life, it gives us death. It promises light, it gives us darkness. It promises joy, it gives us sorrow. It says, come on, follow me into the land of freedom. And we're like, yes, I'm about freedom. And we follow it into the land of freedom. And is it the land of freedom? Come on, everybody over 25, is it? It's the land of regret. It's the land of addiction. It's the land of compulsion. It's the land of slavery. Sin is not a beautiful vine that decorates our lives. Oh, isn't that amazing? No, no, no. It's an insidious vine that grows up and lays hold of our hearts, of our relationships, of our marriages, of our families, and chokes out the life in all of those things. So yeah, in Lent, God calls us to die to our sin, but only so that we might then learn how truly to live, which, by the way, meets with the trajectory of Lent, does it not? Because it doesn't end on Good Friday with the death of Jesus. It ends on Easter. It ends in life and resurrection. So with all of that in mind, we pick up our study today in John chapter 4, where Jesus calls us to examine ourselves. It's Lent and for something in particular. So what is that? He calls us to examine ourselves for all of the ways and for all of the people and for all of the things, not named Jesus, there's the key, that in truth we're looking to to satisfy the longings of our soul. Oh Lord, I say that my identity is in you, but here's the real truth. My identity is in this thing over here. Oh Lord, I say that I find my significance in you, but honestly it's in this. My security, no, it's in this. My value, no, it's in this. My rest, no, no, actually it's, it's in this. He comes to us and says, listen, stop pretending to be somebody that you're not. And that's what we all do. <laughs> Let's talk about who you really are. Okay, so here's the deal. Die to those things. 
They can't give you what you're looking for. And the reality is you know it. That's why you go from one to the next, 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 all the while ending up what? In the end, thirsty. All the while ending up just like the woman we're going to see in this story at one of the wells of this world with an empty jar hoping that maybe this is the one that will satisfy our thirsty soul. Okay, listen, if the well is not Christ, then you're just going to go to another well, and another well, and another well, until you humble yourself before Him and say, all right, listen, I've tried it. Okay, so here's the deal. Satisfy me, Lord, and forgive me for all the wells I've had to visit before I came to you. So we pick up our study in John 4, beginning in verse 4, where John says this. He says that Jesus, who at this point in the story, if you're familiar with it, is down in the city of Jerusalem, which is located in the southern part of the nation of Israel that actually matters, and who wants to travel up to Galilee, which is located in the north. Okay, Jesus, we're told now by John, had to pass through Samaria. Well, where was Samaria? It was in between the north and south. It's in the center. But why did he have to pass through it? Because if you know anything about the Jews and the Samaritans, you know that that's something that good Jews just did not do. Now, why didn't they do that? Because Samaria was full of Samaritans. And they hated the Samaritans. And so what they would do instead is they would go down by the Dead Sea. They would cross over the Jordan River. And then they would come up the eastern side of the Jordan River, the Transjordan. They would go around Samaria in the center. And then they'd cross over again above Samaria. And they'd finish their trip up into the north. Well, what was the problem with these people? Well, there were lots of problems. About 700 years before Jesus was born, the Assyrian Empire swept down from the northeast with their mighty military, and they took over and completely consumed what was then called the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and the capital city of the Northern Kingdom of Israel was named Samaria. They gathered up a whole bunch of these Jewish people who were living there, and they took them away back to Assyria. And then what they did is they left some behind, and then they repopulated the area with foreigners. And what happened in all of the Jews to the south that were unconquered watched this happen. What happened is the Jews that were left behind began to intermarry with these foreigners, and that was massively offensive to the Jews to the south. Why? Because they felt like that was a betrayal of the covenant God of Israel. You're leaving the faith to do this. That was their deal. And then it got worse because this new race of people called the Samaritans then rejected the temple in Jerusalem as the proper place for the sacrifice for sins. And they established their own place at a place called Mount Gerizim, which is actually a part of this story. They rejected what we would call the Old Testament with the exception of the first five books. And so it was just insult upon insult upon insult. And what happened over the course of many centuries is many centuries worth of conflict and of racism and even of terrorism. So you look at that, and with that understanding, you think, good grief, you know, like who in their right mind, if they were a Jew, would want to travel through Samaria? I mean, these people are unclean, according to the Jews. There's all kinds of problems. And the answer is Jesus, but not because it was the fastest route, because he had an appointment with a woman that he will meet at a well, who, as I hope you will see, is a perfect picture of me and of you. She looks just like us. At least in the sense that here's what she's doing. Thirsty soul, 
Okay, I'm going to go to this well. All right, that doesn't work. And I'm going to go to this. You know, that doesn't work. I'm going to go to this well. And that doesn't work. And I'm going to go to this well. And that doesn't work. And I'm going to turn up now again with my empty jar. It's emblematic, not just of the thirst of her body, guys. It's emblematic of the thirst of her soul and of mine and of yours. And so then John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria in order to meet this woman who looks just like us. And so to that end, Jesus then came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, which John then tells us was located, now notice the detail, near the field that Jacob, keyword, had given to his son Joseph. And not only that, but here's Jacob's name again. Jacob's well was there. And then what does Jesus do at Jacob's well? We read that wearied as he was from the journey, Jesus was sitting beside the well. And if you come to the Bible with the presupposition that it is in fact God's Word and a piece of literary art carefully constructed in which every single detail matters, which incidentally is what it is, then you start asking questions of it as you study it. So like you're reading the story and you're thinking, what, you know, what's all this talk about Jacob? I mean, why is that even necessary to the story? Like, what is that intended to cause me to do? It's intended to cause me to flip all the way back into the book of Genesis and to read the story of how Jacob met his wife, Rachel, at a well and to lay that down next to what we see in this story. Jesus is clearly being cast as the new Jacob, and it's a brand new well story, and there's a new bride too. But first, what about Jacob? What what did we know about Rachel from that story? We know that Rachel was beautiful and pure. And what do we know about Jacob from that story? We know that Jacob was limited in his capacity to love. And here's what I mean by that. Jacob could not love someone who was not beautiful and pure. So then Jesus, who's clearly being cast as the new Jacob, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside Jacob's well. And if you're laying those stories down next to one another, what kind of a woman are you now expecting to come out to meet him? You're, well, you're expecting somebody who looks like Rachel, are you not? And just please know that that is exactly the opposite of what we now get. And we know that it's exactly the opposite of what we get because of the detail that we get next, where John says that it was about the sixth hour when Jesus took his seat by the well and sent his disciples off into the town, leaving him there alone. And he sat there waiting for this woman to arrive. Now, why does it matter that it's the sixth hour? Because the sixth hour is noon. Noon is the hottest part of the day. And we're not first century ancient Near Eastern people. Got that. So here's what we don't know that helps to know. Women in the ancient Near East did not go to wells, number one, alone, because you don't know who you're going to meet there. And never in the middle of the day. But instead, they would gather together in the cool of the day in the morning, or they would gather together in the cool of the day in the evening, and for reasons related to protection, and because it was also kind of a social hour, they would all go out to the well together, not when it's hot, and all in a big group. So when John comes to us and he says, listen, here's what you need to know about this woman. She's coming out to the well, she's all by herself, and it's the middle of the day. What he's really saying to us is she's not at all like Rachel. She's not beautiful and she absolutely is not pure. And she has therefore then been rejected by all the women in this town as a result of that fact. So she comes out in the middle of the day when she knows that none of them are going to be there because frankly, she's sick of hearing their comments. She's sick of having them point at her. She's sick of enduring their stares and their judgments and their critique. Her dirty laundry is bare for everybody to see and she doesn't want to hear about it. So she comes alone. But she comes with her water pot. 
and just like her soul, it's empty. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside Jacob's well, waiting for this perfect picture of all of us to arrive. And it was about the sixth hour, and a woman from Samaria, so here she comes, came to draw water. And then Jesus did something highly unusual in that culture. He spoke to this woman. That's not weird for us today, thankfully. But it was really weird back then. This kind of thing didn't happen. It was considered highly inappropriate for a man to speak to a woman in public who he was not married to. And Jesus is not married to her, and she's not just a woman that he's not married to. She's a Samaritan woman. She's unclean from his perspective as a Jew and from all the Jews' perspective. And more than that, good grief, she's coming out at noon alone. So she's a Samaritan woman with a publicly scandalous reputation. And there she is, the picture of us. You making the connections? Because I'm guessing there might be a little bit of turmoil there, right? Yet there she is. And I thought about that this week, and I thought, all right, so why do we struggle making the connections with this woman? And I think there are lots of different reasons. I'm going to give you three possible reasons. I think possible reason, number one, that we struggle in making this connection with this woman is that as I've already clearly implied, guys, this woman had tried to satisfy the deepest longings of her soul. How? Through relationship after relationship after sexual relationship. You get the idea? Through her promiscuity. And listen, you might be able to identify with that completely, and that's you, and you're like, right on, you can just continue with the message. But that might not be you, and you might be going, hey, you know what, that's really not me. But if you're trying to do the same thing with money or status or achievement or travel or experience or marriage or children or popularity or with anything else not named Jesus, aren't you just trying to do the same thing with a different means? Suddenly the shoe fits. I think possible reason number two is our own egos. Our egos get in the way. Here's what all of us do, and we do it subconsciously for the most part, although consciously, sometimes I think, we guard ourselves and our reputation. We, we pretend to be somebody that we're not. We tell ourselves that we're someone that we're not. We try to get everybody else to believe that we're someone that we're not. We're always dealing with who we're not as opposed to who we are, and Jesus is going to cut through all of that. It's very uncomfortable and incredibly liberating. If there is a place on the planet where we don't have to pretend, it really should be here. But that's not always the case, is it? Why? So in our egos, we're naturally avoiding the broken characters of the Bible, the scandalous characters of the Bible. And we're looking after the heroes going, yeah, I want to be like that guy. Although you might notice that all of the heroes of the Bible, with the exception of one, have massive, huge failures and flaws. What's the point of that? It's for us to realize that there is only one unflawed one. And here's what we ought to do in humility and brokenness. Before our God, we should say, you know, good grief, I'm actually a lot like this woman in this case, or this flawed character over there. And not only do we in our egos avoid the flawed characters of the Bible, we avoid the flawed people of our society we stand in judgment over them, forgetting that, in fact, we're made of exactly the same clay as every single one of them. And given the same set of shaping circumstances in my life or yours, we would be capable of doing what they do, of saying what they say, of being exactly who they've become. We need to stop dealing with who we're not. 
and deal with who we are. That's the pathway to freedom. Possible reason number three, I think, is that unlike the world that Jesus lived in back then and that that woman lived in back then, okay, we now live in a world in which there is no right and wrong, and the only scandalous thing is to say that there's a scandalous thing. Think about that. So then the Bible comes to us, or the preacher guy gets up, and he uses a word like sin, for example, and we're not exactly sure that we know what he means, but we do know enough to say, you know what, if sin exists, then there must be a right, and there must be a wrong, and there must be noteworthy and praiseworthy things, and scandalous and dishonorable things. And not just for me and for you, as we all choose our little private system of ethics, but for everyone, like if sin exists, Tom, then there must be a God and he must transcend all things and he must stand above all things and he must actually dictate right, wrong, scandalous, noteworthy. And not just for me and not just for you, but for absolutely everyone. And that is massively uncomfortable. Like there is probably no more shunned idea in our culture than that. And so, you know, when you hear the word, you kind of want to go because the whole culture is saying, you need to say this, Tom, I deny the existence of sin. And you know, okay, that's how you can do that if you want. But here's what you can't deny. You can't deny the effects of sin. It's like denying gravity and then dropping your keys, you know, because they're going to fall to the ground. It's like going to the beach on a perfect cloudless day and denying the existence of the sun. Well, look, if I'm there with you, I'm going to start squirting you down with sunscreen, okay? Because, you know, if your skin's like mine, in about five minutes, you're going to turn red. We can deny that sin exists and that right exists and that wrong exists and that there's anything in the world that's scandalous. We can say, man, anybody can do whatever they want to do. And, I, you know, in some sense, you can do whatever you want to do, but you can't deny the fact that at some point, if you're honest, you realize, I'm just like this woman. I, I'm just taking my empty pot to this well and it satisfies for a little bit and then I'm thirsty again and then, then I go to this water and that satisfies for a little while, but that didn't last and now I go to this well. You get the idea? You can't argue with that. And so even though it was scandalous for Jesus to speak to this woman who is, in fact, a perfect picture of all of us, he speaks to her anyway. And notice what he says, verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples, John tells us, had all gone into town or into the city to buy food. And so then what does this mean? Well, it means that he's not only willing to talk to this Samaritan woman, but he's willing to touch what the Samaritan woman touched, which was a no-no for a Jew because she's unclean and everything she touches is unclean. And beyond that, he's willing to place his lips where she placed her lips. He's going to drink out of her jar. That's the point. And so, you know, whereas, I mean... Just keeping it real, I would have been asking her questions about her health and about whether she's, you know, had a cold recently and anybody is sick around her. And can you tell me about that lip sore and does it reoccur? Is this a one-time thing? And, you know, I'd be pulling out my Purell, which I'm not kidding, I actually have. And I'd be spraying it down and wiping down the edges. And Jesus is not concerned with these things. Why is he not concerned with these things? Because it's really important. There's a difference between me and you and Christ. Here's the difference. Everything and everyone he touches he makes clean. That is his power. <laughs> that is his glory. But you have to submit to his touch, don't you? Like at some point, you've got to look at your life and go, all right, so here's the deal. Gravity exists, the sun exists, and sin exists. And I'm empty again. And I'm thirsty again. And no matter what it is that I'm taking in, it doesn't work. It's like drinking sand 
and you need to come to him. So Jesus says, give me a drink. And this woman is so blown away that she skates right past his request. And we read in verse 9 that the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, she's obviously stunned, how is it that you, a Jew, asks for a drink from me, an obviously scandalous woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And then instead of saying something like, listen, we've walked a long way, it's really hot here in the Middle East, I'm dying, you know... Come on, lady, can we stick to the topic? I want a drink. He he just kind of goes with it. He says, if you knew the gift of God, and that's what it is, is it not? It's a debt we can't pay. It's a water we can't create or find. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of Him, and He would have given you the living water of God's Holy Spirit, who is Himself the gift of God and leads to repentance and faith in Me, through whom you are forgiven and made clean and made new, and through whom your soul is finally and fully satisfied. Okay, He doesn't say all of that, but that is what He's saying. And that is what He's offering. And not just to her, that's the point. So Jesus says, look, if if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of me, he's saying, and and I would have given you living water. And so the woman said to him, sir, you know, I I don't mean to be Captain Obvious here, but I mean, you're talking about water and I'm I'm kind of looking around you and, and you have nothing to draw water with. And by the way, in case you're new to the area, Jacob's well is really deep and it is really deep. You can go there today. It's over 100 feet deep now. And so Jesus says, in a sense, look, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. Okay, so you've come out to a well physically full of physical water, but it's emblematic of your soul. And you've come out to that well because your body is thirsty, but that's emblematic of your soul. And you've come out to that well with this jar in order to take up this physical water. But what you really want is a drink that sustains your soul. So let me speak about this well in such a way as to speak also about all of the wells, literal and figurative, that exist in this world and all of the waters that we can all of us and we do run off to go find that we drink and then are left thirsty again Jesus says everyone who drinks of this water from this well or any of the other waters or any of the other wells will do what will thirst again which explains why just like this woman we go from well to well relationship to relationship job to job city to city place to place experience to experience satisfied for a moment and then thirsty again so everyone who drinks from this water from this well will thirst again but whoever drinks of the water that i will give him will never be thirsty again for the water that i will give him will become where in him a what a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And now I love her response because even though it's clear she doesn't yet really understand exactly what he's talking about, and would you? She does at least at this point know that she wants whatever it is that he's talking about. And so the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, and here's why I want this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come out here all by myself in the heat of the day because of the scandalous ways that I've sought to quench the thirst of my soul to draw water. And then Jesus says, okay, now we're going to get down to it. Now we're going to talk about the real you. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. 
for you have had five husbands. And I want to pause there for a second. And you need to know that in that culture, the men divorce the women, not the other way around. It is a good thing that that has changed. But nevertheless, that was the case back then. And so then you've got to feel the weight of that for a second because she got married and then was rejected and divorced. And then she got and then was rejected and divorced. And then she got married and then was rejected and divorced again and again and again five times. Jesus says, let me tell you about the real you. I'm going to take your mask off. We're going to stop pretending for a minute, okay? So here's the deal. You've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. He's not willing to do that for you, and you're willing to go for that. That's how beaten down you are. What you have said, Jesus says, is true. And it sounds insensitive, maybe. But I want to tell you that it's not insensitive. If he's going to heal our wounds, he has to expose them for what they are. Doesn't he? I mean, we can pretend and we can play and we can dance around it or we can just get right down to it and actually deal with it. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's exposing and illustrating from her own life that the waters of this world, be they the literal waters of Jacob's well or the waters of relationship or sex or money or adventure or status or achievement or experience or marriage or children or popularity or anything else not named Jesus, okay, cannot and will not satisfy you. Why? Because they're not equipped to do that. You're made to be satisfied by the one who made you to be satisfied in Him. And He does this in order to lead her to find that life and satisfaction. And so the woman said to Him, having heard her history now revealed, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Yeah, a little more than that, but nevertheless, so she asks him a theological question. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, meaning on Mount Gerizim, which they can actually see from this well, the place where the Samaritans say that, you know, sacrifices for sin needed to be made, but you Jews say that it's in Jerusalem. That's the place where people ought to worship and make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, and it almost seems, if you don't know what she's doing, that she's been hurt by his statement, and she's trying to change the topic, but I don't think that's what she's doing at all. I think what she's doing is she's saying, hey, you know what, you're right about that. We're going to be real great. That's exactly right. That's my history. That's what I've done. I have tried to satisfy my thirsty soul in all of the wrong ways, and I'm going to say that gravity exists, and the sun exists, and sin exists, and I can't deny the effects of it, and so it's real. And so I have sinned. So now what do I do? Where do I take it? Because our people say Mount Gerizim is the place, and your people say temple in Jerusalem is the place. So what do I do? And Jesus said to her, verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, those whose sins have been washed away by the blood of the true Lamb, who is Jesus, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And then the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ, and when He comes, He will tell us all things. He'll clear all this stuff up for us. And then Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am He. And what's the result? Well, we find it Two verses later in verse 28, John says, So the woman left 
her water jar. Now, wait a minute, what does that represent? Well, hopefully you realize by now it's not just the thirst of her body. It's the thirst of her soul. She left her water jar and then she went away into the town of Sychar to the very people that she had been trying to avoid by coming out to the well in the middle of the day and said to those people, notwithstanding the fact that they had mistreated her, she said, come out to the well to see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, if you're one of them and you're hearing that, are you impressed by that statement? Because maybe at that point you're thinking, listen, everybody in town knows everything you ever did. So, you know, like... Why is that persuasive? It's not. She's persuasive. What's remarkable, guys, is that this woman whose life was publicly and scandalously marked by insatiable thirst that she tried and tried and tried in publicly scandalous ways, at least in that day, to satisfy from the waters of the wells of this world was now so obviously satisfied and set free, not just from the sin, but from the shame and from the guilt that would drive her out to the well in the middle of the day to avoid everyone. Okay, that at this point, she's not going out to the well to avoid them. She's leaving the well at noon to come and find them. And it's her shame, if you will, that has become her testimony. It's remarkable. But why is she doing that for them? Because she's alive to something that I hope that we are awakened to as well. Which is that actually those people, they were just like her. I mean, maybe not in the same way, but they were, they were trying to satisfy their thirst in other ways. They needed the same Jesus. And if you've done your personal worship, then you know that that's what these guys did. They went out there and found life and satisfaction in Christ. And hopefully you know that that's what the Lord offers to you as well. But only if you take off the mask. <laughs> only if you let Jesus just get right down to the point. Only if when he does that, you don't change the topic because it's too psychologically traumatic. Only if you allow him to approach the area of wounding and of injury, self-inflicted largely, that he might heal only if you say, you know what, gravity exists and the sun exists and sin exists and I can you know, deny that with my ego. I can write it off with my culture and everyone will bless me for it, but I'm still empty. And you come to him and let him forgive you, A, and let him fill you. It's the way it works. By the power of the Spirit, we examine ourselves and then by the power of the same Spirit, we say, okay, so if we're going to be real, I've got to put this on the table. And I have to say, Jesus suffered and died for this. And I finally need to deal with it. So he's died for it. I'm going to die to it. And in dying to it, I will find authentic freedom in life. So I close with this. It's a one-question deal. What are you seeking to satisfy your soul with? Because if it's anyone or anything not named Jesus, then Lent is the perfect time of year to die to it so that you might find resurrection life. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You, Lord, um, that though we willingly and on our own and in pursuit of ourselves ran up a debt by living for ourselves or by living for other people or by living for other things or really, Lord, 
all of the above. That you did not forsake us in the way that we forsook you. But instead, O oh Lord, you came into this world as the man who is Jesus. Who laid down his life to pay our debt and to satisfy our soul. To fill us with your spirit. To call us to the most dignified use of a life that there is. Which is to live it for you. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And so then, do not let us be false with you. Do not leave our masks in place. Do not allow us to avoid, by means of our ego or rationalizations, what we know to be true. Because it shows up in our lives. And that is that we need to be made clean by your touch. And we need to be satisfied by the living water of your Spirit. Lord, for your glory and for our good, draw us to yourself and teach us how to live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.